0: Well, many of you have probably read stories lately of heroes of the Christian faith in the modern era, uh, great megachurch pastors, other men and women of God who have fallen in terrible ways and done terrible things. Uh, We see these stories sometimes on the evening news, read about them on the internet. Sometimes we read about them in the newspaper as well. And often the same response comes up in our hearts and it is how on earth can someone who has received so much from God and has been trusted with so much by God do something so terrible. Uh, I remember reading a year or two ago of one of my favorite worship leaders, someone who influenced my own thoughts on singing in the church, wrote amazing songs that helped the church to worship, led his own church in a way to worship that was just amazing, attracted great musicians to worship with him, uh, really had so many things going for him, and had informed me so much. Uh, I read a year or two ago that he was leaving his church, his wife, and his children so that he could live with his college-age girlfriend in her mom's basement and that was the end of his ministry career and it just hit me so deeply that one of my own heroes of the faith left me saying how on earth could someone like that do something like this it was now a little over a year ago when many of us read in the houston chronicle the report about abuse within the southern baptist convention they were able to uncover 200 different instances when someone in leadership in a church, usually a staff member in a church, abused someone underneath them, often sexual abuse, uh, was then dismissed from that church and charged legally. So it was publicly known that they had done this and they were still able to get on staff, often in a pastoral or ministerial position in another church because of a lack of due diligence. And the thing to remember is that each and every one of those 200 or so people was somebody's spiritual hero, like the person who led them to Christ and taught them so much about the Bible. And it just leaves our hearts broken saying, how could could someone so great do something so terrible? And I'm sure that there is hypocrisy in the church and we're often a target for wolves and there are many pretend Christians out there who would abuse others, but some of these people are real genuine Christians who have simply fallen into something terrible. And the story we're going to look at today helps us process that. This is a story we read last week and didn't get to hear much from. Uh, It helps us because we get to watch two heroes of the faith in the ancient world fall into something terrible. Uh, One of them, so great in the faith that my wife and I named our firstborn child after her, and yet we see that hero fall into a pattern of abuse here of someone who is under her. Uh, That helps us process this. It helps us look at sin rightly, helps us answer the tough questions. And ultimately, I think we will find it helps to warn us against falling into the same sin patterns ourselves. So let's look together at Genesis 16. I'll read the whole story for you, but only preach from the first half today. And next week, God willing, I'll preach to you from the second half where God talks to Hagar. We read the whole thing today though. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, that it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarah said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness and the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over and against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called 'er Be'er Leheai Ro'ai. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. The word of the Lord. So we have here a cautionary tale. Uh, here's a recap of it, and then a look into just what they did that was wrong, because it can be a little unclear. Uh Years before this happened, the Lord had made a promise to this man, Abram, who we often know as Abraham, his wife, Sarai, who we know as Sarah, as their names will be changed later in the story. He made a promise to them that they would have many descendants and a land for those descendants to dwell in and become a nation. And they are now travelers in this land, just sojourning throughout this land, traveling here, traveling there. 10 years have gone by and they still have not had a son even a child at all. And this is very tense for them because they were already advanced in age and it already appeared that Sarah was unable to have children. So this was a very fanciful promise in their eyes that they would have many descendants one day. Uh, But trusting in the promise, now 10 years and more later, they still have no children. And so they resort to an alternative plan. You could say, Sarai gets the idea. She says, why don't I give you one of my servants? You can have her as a second wife. And if she bears a son, which she probably will, then I can take the baby. The baby will be mine and I will procure children that way instead of the natural way. Abram agrees to this. Uh, In a sense, it works, but it sort of backfires on Sarai because now Hagar has conceived And so she's a childbearing wife, and Sarai is still a non childbearing wife, which puts Sarai lower on the totem pole than Hagar. And so Hagar begins to look with contempt on her. And this angers Sarah. So Abram gives Sarah permission, Sarai permission to do whatever she wants to Hagar, to abuse her, mistreat her, whatever. And she does. It says she dealt harshly with her, which is a term for mistreatment or abuse. And whatever she does to her, be it verbal, physical, we don't know, it is so terrible that Hagar flees into the desert that is too far to cross on foot to almost certain death, choosing this certain death over the suffering that she has under Sarai. And so we're all left with a bad taste in our mouth. I hope many of us are probably sick to our stomach hearing what our heroes have done. Uh, But what exactly is it that they did? There are several things that the Bible condemns that they've done, some of which they may have done and some of which they may not have done. Uh, It may be that Abram and Sarai are guilty of enslavement or what the New Testament calls man-stealing. It's difficult to tell, though, because this word for servant is a very flexible word. It can mean a lot of things. But the way the story reads, especially because the Egyptian pharaoh in the past gave Abram and Sarai many male and female servants, it certainly sounds like it could be real slavery that they are experiencing here and are guilty of being part of. We don't know that 100%, but we could say probably on that one. Uh, we also can say for sure that they are that Abram is guilty of the sin of polygamy, uh, a very grievous thing before the Lord. And we don't know whether Hagar was complicit in this or whether she had no choice and it was forced upon her. It may be that she saw the opportunity to be married to the big boss and said, hey, this is fantastic and was excited about it. Or it may be that this was all forced upon her and there is a rape element to what went on here. So it could be that Abram is guilty in that sense as well, but he's at least guilty of polygamy. And one thing we can be certain of, Sarai deals harshly with Hagar, uh, a word that means mistreatment or abuse. And whatever she does, whether it's physical or verbal, again, is so bad that Hagar runs away from it. Uh, So someone under their authority, uh, Sarah mistreats her this terribly, uh, probably abuses her this terribly, and Abram signs off on it. So we have our heroes guilty of grievous things before God. And so we have to look at the text and say, okay, why would God tell us about this? Why would God give us this unsettling of a story? What does he want us to feel about it? Does he want us to kind of give them a free pass because they're the heroes of the faith and they're mother and father to us all? Does he want us to rise up and condemn them? Does he want us to weep? What does he want us to do in response to this? And there are several cues in the text that I'll walk you through that show us that indeed what the Lord wants is for us to be grieved and a little sick to our stomachs at what has gone on here. So let me walk you through those details there, are five of them. First, you can see that what they do here is very different from God's pattern laid out in Genesis one and two for marriage and more like an evil character in Genesis four. And I'll explain what I mean here. If you've read through the book of Genesis, especially if you've been through uh, this sermon series with us, You'll remember the ideals in the Garden of Eden, where the first man and first woman were joined together in the marriage that we all wish we had. Uh, the Lord brings Eve to Adam, and he, and he gives her to him, and he says things like, this is very good, and be blessed, be fruitful, and multiply, and have dominion over the earth. And you have this idyllic picture of what marriage is supposed to be like, and that picture is one husband and one wife joined together, and that is how, we, that is how baby-making works. That is how we do that, the one husband, the one wife picture, so ideal. And then, after we have rebelled against God, only a few chapters later, Cain, the first great villain, in, at least human, of the Bible, has a descendant named Lamech. And Lamech is portrayed as a very evil man, the first person to have multiple wives, noted in the Bible. And he comes to his wives and sings or even shouts this song of intimidating threats at them, designed to keep them in line through threat of abuse and through intimidation. So you've got that very negative picture of marriage, right? This is what the bad guys do. The good guys do it like Adam and Eve. And... What should be unsettling us here is that the good guys, Abram and Sarai, are acting like Lamech. They're acting like the bad guys with this multiple wives stuff they're pulling, with this abuse and intimidation that they are pulling. So we should look at it and see that the good guys are acting like the bad guys. Several neat literary things the story does as well uh, to call to mind really calamitous moments in world history. For instance, if you look with me at verse 3, you can see a few words that might sound familiar in what Sarai does. It says about halfway through, so Sarai took took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. So, some words I want to point out there. She took and gave to her husband. Now, there's one other character in Genesis who also took something, the same exact word, gave that something, same exact word, to her husband, same exact word there as well. And that is Eve, who takes the forbidden fruit from the tree and gives some to her husband who is there. So we have in there a connection, kind of a a beautiful literary device connecting this story to the most calamitous moment in human history when Eve takes that forbidden fruit from the forbidden tree, takes some, and gives it to her husband. Just one more way we're just meant to be disgusted at what they're doing here. As if the Lord is saying, this is that bad here. Uh, Another one is in verse five, and this one is a little crass, but it is the way that the Bible is worded, and so we embrace it. Uh, In verse five, we see Sarah say to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, she says. Um, That's a very gentle translation of what the Hebrew says. The literal Hebrew says, I put my servant girl in your lap. Uh, And Sarah says it, in that disgusting of a way, in that crass of a way. Uh, She is not talking like a lady here, you could say. And for her to speak in that sort of way is to cast Sarai in a negative light, even in the way she speaks here, which speaks also to what she is doing. Another one in verse 6, I've talked about this a little bit, but you see Sarai deal harshly with Hagar. It says she dealt harshly. Um, An important thing to remember here is that what eventually will happen is their descendants will become a nation. They will be enslaved by the Egyptians and treated very terribly by the Egyptians, but the Lord will rescue them from slavery, take them out into the desert, and they and their children will wander the desert together for 40 years those people, those former slaves of Egypt who were mistreated and their children would be the first readers of Genesis, the first people to ever get to look at the scroll and read what Moses has written here. They would have fresh in their minds the mistreatment they endured at the hands of Egyptian slave masters. And the biting thing that Moses does here is he uses the same word right there, Sarah dealt harshly with her, That's the same word he uses in Exodus 1 when the cruel Pharaoh and the cruel taskmaster mistreat the Egyptians. So that word is going to stick out to the original readers and bite them to say, Wow, she did the same kind of stuff that those people did to us. And then finally, the larger pattern of the story points to how grievous what they have done is. There's a pattern in Genesis, a story form that happens often, where people will scheme and do something very bad for the first part of the story. And then in the second act of the story, God will show up and deal with what they have done. God's silent for the first half of the story. People do bad stuff. Then he shows up and deals with it. This is what happens when Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit from the forbidden tree. God is nowhere to be found for the first part of that story. The serpent is talking, Eve is talking, Adam and Eve do things, God's nowhere to be found. And then they hear the sound of God coming in the garden. Uh, The same thing happens in the Tower of Babel or Babel. You could say it either way. The people build this great tower in their pride and hubris, try to pierce into God's domain in heaven. And God's nowhere to be found for the first half. And then the Lord comes down and deals with it. Uh, When terrible calamitous things like that happen, the flood story has a similar echo to it. We know what they're doing is very, very bad. And that's what happens here as well. Sarah and Abram do things, they scheme, they do bad things. And it's not till the second half that God shows up and deals with it. So the pictures of what they've done And those details of the story should just leave us disgusted with what our heroes have done. And if you're that far, I mean, if you're looking at this and just thinking, ugh this is not a fun story, then you're halfway to where I think the Lord wants you to be with this story. That is the first thing we need to feel. That is the first step. The Lord wants us to look at sin within God's people and just hate it and just say, why do we still do these things? Why are there still newspaper reports about leaders in the church doing terrible things to people? Lord, why and how long? That's the first thing we should feel, just a disgust with it. For the other thing we ought to feel, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. When we have stories like this in the Old Testament, uh, the people of God do bad things and there are terrible consequences, which the consequences aren't till much later in this story. This chapter in 1 Corinthians gives us a guide for how to interpret those stories we see in verse six of chapter 10 it says now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did and then if you skip down to verse 11 now these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall So these types of stories are meant to be cautionary for us. We are not to look back at Abram and Sarai and say, what a disgusting thing they've done. Thank God I don't do things like that. No, we need to look at it and say, if I think I stand, I must take heed lest I fall. If Abram and Sarai can do this kind of thing, I can do it too because I'm a sinner as well. And then we have to take the warnings from the story and we have to just look in it over and over and say, God, how are you using this story to keep us from falling into the same sin? And if we do that, we'll find two things in the story that God uses to keep us from falling into the same heinous and terrible acts. For the first one, for the first warning, let's just look at, Sarai's motive for what she did. You can see it in verse two. It's very plain there. Sarai said to Abram, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. And here it is. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Her motive is simple. She wants a child. She wants a child, which is the same thing everyone else in that era wants. It is what people in the ancient Near East were obsessed with and were enslaved to. The measure of a person was how many children you had. And if you made it through a long life with no children, you did not live a fulfilled life. They would do whatever they had to do to obtain children, those that were rich and powerful. You can say that that era was enslaved to the idea of having children. I have a friend who is a minister in Nigeria and he says it's the same way today in Nigeria, that in Nigeria, if you are married for three years and have not born children, your marriage is considered a complete failure. All other factors, irregardless, no children after a few years, marriage is a failure and usually it falls apart. And what he's trying to do is persuade infertile couples in Nigeria to adopt children because there's also an orphan problem there. Uh, Pray for him. His name is Adimundo. if you think of him. Uh, But the point is that in that era and in some parts of the world today, people are enslaved to the idea of having children. And in their enslavement to a good gift from God, they're willing to do terrible things. And so the first warning we see today then is we must not become enslaved to the things the world around us is enslaved to. Some of us may desire children greatly, but most of us see around us the world enslaved to desires, following desires, following the course of the world, because what they want governs what they do. In our world today, there are two great things the world around us is enslaved to, which we must guard against. Success, success, and the myth of sexual fulfillment. The world around us is enslaved to both of those things. Sometimes that enslavement to success can lead organizations to do terrible things. How many companies have covered up abuse in their company because it would take their success away from them if the truth got out? How many churches have swept abuse under the rug and denied justice to somebody, put someone in a vulnerable position because they did not want to sacrifice the success of the church? Think of how it would damage the church if this got out. That is often why it is covered up. At the root We are enslaved to God's good gift of ministry success when we do things like that. The same way that Sarai and Abram were enslaved to having children, God's good gift, which the people around them were enslaved to. In the same way, the world around us is so enslaved to the idea of sexual fulfillment, as if if you could figure out exactly who you were and find the perfect person and share in great intimacy with them, as if that would be a fulfilled life and as if that wouldn't be a fleeting thing when that person was taken from you one day or the relationship faded. But in this quest for fulfillment Through sexual acts, we have given ourselves to so many terrible, terrible things and have put ourselves on the path to doing the kind of heinous things that Abram and Sarai have done. So the first warning we must heed is that we cannot enslave ourselves to God's good gifts the way the people around us have in the same way that Sarah and Abraham enslaved themselves to God's good gifts in the way the people around them did. For the second one, I want to read to you some tablets that have been uncovered from that era in the ancient Near East. One of these is from Hammurabi's Code, and another of them is from an ancient newsy text that's a marriage covenant. I'll read them to you. They sound awkward. The point of them is that this thing that Abram and Sarai did was common among people like them in that day. Hammurabi's code in section 146 reads when a senior that is a free man marries a priestess and she gave a female slave to her husband and she has borne them children. If later that female slave has claimed equality with her mistress because she bore children, her mistress may not sell her. She may mark her with a slave mark and count her among the slaves. There's also an ancient Nuzi marriage covenant from about the same era that says, if, and then it says the bride's name, if the bride does not bear children, remember these are part of their marriage vows, if the bride does not bear children, uh, then she may take a woman from this other land where choice slaves are obtained for a wife for the bridegroom so that they can have children. And an old Assyrian text that's a marriage covenant says the same thing. Uh, The point is rich and powerful people in this era were doing the very same thing that Abram and Sarai did. That's important for us because that means that Sarah didn't concoct this thing creatively and say, hey, I have an idea for an alternative way to make children. No, they were compromising in the same way that the world around them compromised. They fell into the sin patterns of the world around them because they were enslaved to the things that the world around them were enslaved to. This is a two-step process enslavement to what they're enslaved to, and then falling into the world's sin patterns around them. Now, we look back at them because our world, the sin patterns are very different, right? We look back at them and we think, they did what? It just sounds so foreign and so strange to us. But they couldn't see the difference because it was just like a fish to water to them. It was just what people do. And in the same way, they would look at us, at some of the things that people around us do and some of us even do, and they would say, you do what? It would be unthinkable to them. And in the same way, we can't see the difference because it's all around us like water to a fish. No fish notices that it's wet with the water all around it. And in the same way, we don't tend to notice when we are enslaved to what the world is enslaved to and then fall into the world's sin patterns. Church, this is why the Bible says in so many places that among you there must not be even a hint of immorality And in another place, that immorality must not even be named among us as is common of the outside world. Why would it say that? Because if we begin to compromise into the world's sin patterns and begin to desire supremely what the world desires supremely around us, we are on our way to committing heinous acts like what Abram and Sarai did. About two or three weeks ago, I was taking apart a box spring. It had gotten old. We couldn't give it away because it was old and no good, but needed to be taken apart and put in our trash can. And the pieces of wood in a box spring are nailed together very firmly. I mean, it needs to hold the weight of two adults. So they're firmly nailed together. Had to get all these pieces apart. And it was so difficult to get the hammer claw in there and pry these pieces of wood apart. But here's what I learned. If you can get those pieces of wood just a millimeter apart and get that hammer claw in there just a little bit. Then you can wiggle the hammer claw and get it two or three millimeters apart. And then you can get the hammer claw in deeper and wiggle it more and now they are further apart. And then you can get the claw in deeper again and wiggle it more until eventually you have separated the pieces of wood entirely. If you just get a little microscopic foothold in there, you can work your way through the whole piece and destroy it. Church, sin works the same way in both a culture and in a person's life. If we allow ourselves, if we allow sin to have even a little foothold in our lives, there is no telling what Satan will do with it next. There is no telling how great it can get. In the same way that one dandelion in your yard this spring is 10 next spring and 100 the following spring, a little bit of leaven spoils the whole lump. If we allow ourselves permissively permissively to fall into acts before God that he disapproves of. There is no telling what great wickedness could come after that. And so the Bible teaches not even a hint of immorality. I'll give you two examples of how this could play out, uh, one in a person's life and one in a culture. Uh, for a person's life, if there is a man who is using pornography, for instance, Uh, And he's permissive about it, all right? He's not taking it to the Lord and confessing it. He's just saying, you know what? Uh, uh, I don't know what to do about it. Uh, He's either ignoring it or allowing it in his life. The truth is, he has already dehumanized the woman on the screen. His actions are affecting her life in a way that he is not thinking about. He's already dehumanized her. And what is to stop him after years of nursing that sin in his life? What is to stop him from dehumanizing someone else? And if you hear that and you say, oh, no, I would never do something like this to a real person, you've already fallen in the trap because you've already called the woman on the screen, not a real person. You have already dehumanized her. So what's to stop you from doing it to someone else? If we allow sin permissively to creep into our lives, there is no telling what damage it will do. And the next thing we may be doing awful things like Abram and Sarai did in this story. Another example that would show it in a culture, the same thing can happen in a culture. A little leaven can spoil the whole lump. And we have seen this happen in our university system. Uh, for the last decades, we've we've seen that there are great party cultures in our universities. We've kind of lauded it. Some of us joked about it and just thought kind of permissively about it, right? Just send our kids off to it. They'll party for a little while. They'll get it out of their system. Uh, this is kind of logic you've heard, right? And the idea is that they'll go, they'll party, they'll do dumb things, they'll experiment, and then they'll grow up and they'll get over it, and then everything will be fine. Well... Last October, the largest study of its kind was released, and a group of researchers surveyed students widespread at 33 of the largest public and private universities in our nation. And what they found there was not just widespread debauchery and partying, but widespread sexual violence on all 33 campuses. That for all these campuses, more than a quarter of the women had reported. Sexual contact without their consent at some time in their college career. One in four of the female students at the biggest colleges in our nation. And we can't unsee that. And that shows us that if we thought we could get by with the permissiveness of all the other things the fraternities and everyone else were doing, we have another thing coming. A little leaven can spoil indeed the whole lump. And now we have a difficult problem to deal with. One way you can say this is that we can fight abuse in the church by fighting sin altogether. The progression down into it would be becoming enslaved to the things the world is enslaved to, and then compromising into the world's sin patterns and then just going deeper. This is not a cliff that stops. We would keep falling off of it if we took the first step off of it. So church, heed the warning. Let us live holy and pure lives, and let us fight abuse even in this church by fighting all sin altogether. Sometimes the Lord's words for us are joyful to hear. sometimes they are hard to hear. And this is one that is hard to hear, but it doesn't make does not make God any less good. It does not make His word any less good. It is a word we need. And so I want to leave you with uh, with answers to two questions you may be asking. I hope that after hearing this, uh, it has scared us a little bit. And it is making us say, okay, Lord, what can I do to make sure I'm not enslaved to the world's desires and not falling into the sin patterns of the world? And I don't do these things that I've read even my heroes doing. I hope it puts in you a desperate craving for holiness in your life and in the lives of all of our people as a church. And I wonder if it makes you ask two questions. One, how do I become holy? And two, how do I enjoy God's good gifts without becoming enslaved to them? What if God has given me some good things? How do I not become enslaved to them? And I'll answer those questions one at a time, and then we'll pray together and we'll be dismissed. Uh, For the first question, how would I become holy? Uh, The most important thing to see there, I believe, is that God makes his people holy when he calls us to Christ. When we become his, we are made holy. You see this all in the New Testament, Uh, The book of 1 Corinthians, Paul writes to some of the nastiest Christians we've ever read about, people that were doing terrible things on the level of what we read about today, except it was widespread, it sounds like, in the church, and they were proud of it. But they are believers, and so Paul calls them, he says, to the saints, to the holy ones in Corinth. Why does he call terrible people saints? Well, because God has made his people holy. If you want to become holy, you must first embrace, Christian, that God has made you holy and is now calling you to live a life that reflects the holiness that he gives to you. I'll read this to you from the book of Ephesians in chapter 5. He says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she might be holy without blemish. Christian, the reason that you are holy is because Jesus died for you to pay for your sins. And because his holiness is given to you, you have been washed and made clean. And now you were called to live a holy life. Now, for some of you here today, it may be that you can't say in good conscience that you're a Christian, that you trust in Jesus, that you, you maybe even hear of Jesus washing us and making us holy, and you're thinking, what is that? Can I get in on that? And the answer is that yes, you can. Our Lord Jesus, the God of the universe, died willingly to pay for the sins of all who would trust him to wash and make holy. All who would trust him, no matter what is in your past and no matter what comes in your future, if you would trust him, you could find that same spotless holiness never to be but defiled ever again. And that brings you to a place where you can live in that holiness. He will make you new and give to you holiness. The primary way he does that is by showing his people how great he is. And he says, be holy as I am holy. So we worship him, we, we see in the Bible, we hear in preaching, we hear in the songs that are sung how magnificent he is. We say he is great, we're in awe before him and that moves our hearts to obey him. Christian, if you wanna grow in holiness, you need to grow in awe before Jesus. You need a bigger and bigger and bigger picture of God so that you might worship him in reverence and then your heart will be more moved to obey that is how one can become holy and grow in holiness. And lastly, briefly, I'll just answer a question you may be asking, which is how can I enjoy God's good gifts without becoming enslaved to them? Right? Am I, am I not, are my wife and I not allowed to enjoy each other? Like, like how do we not become enslaved to this? And the book of Ecclesiastes gives us a good answer to that. It tells us very plainly, uh, that God is the giver of all good gifts, uh, that we should enjoy them when he gives them to us and that all of those gifts are fleeting. And so if God has given you riches or if he has given you a deep and intimate friendship with your spouse, or if he has given you children that rise up and bless your name or any great thing that could enslave you but is a good gift from God, here's how you enjoy that. You thank God as the giver of it. Then you enjoy it. And then you remember that one day it will be fleeting. Maybe last night you got to gorilla a steak and eat it. What was the right way to do that? Thank God before you eat it. He's the giver of good gifts. Enjoy that steak for all that it is worth. And remember that when the plate is empty, you can't have that steak back. It's fleeting. And now here you are this morning, and the steak is gone, and you can't enjoy it anymore. If you can embrace that, you can do it. If God has given you a good thing with your spouse, what do you do? You thank God, the one who gave it to you. You enjoy one another as long as you can. And you remember that these days are fleeting. One day you will be unable to enjoy each other, or one of you will die first. All good gifts are fleeting except Jesus himself. Receive the gift from God, enjoy it, and remember that it's fleeting. That is how we avoid becoming enslaved to God's good gifts. May God make us into a holy people. May he help us fight abuse by fighting sin altogether. Let's pray, church.